Welcome to the Self-Love Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Ross Rosenberg. I am the author of The Human Magnet Syndrome, The Codependent Narcissist Trap, and the creator of the Codependency Cure and Hitch Trauma Resolution Treatment Programs. If you identify with codependency, which I renamed the Self-Love Deficit Disorder, or you're caught in the crosshairs of narcissistic abuse or gaslighting, you've come to the right place. Expect the very best information that I know, whether from my own personal journey of recovery or through my 35 years of professional experience. What separates my work from others is my understanding of the origin of the problem, the solutions, and the necessity to take responsibility for one's broken picker that always points them to the dream of the soulmate, but the nightmare of the cellmate. So join my self-love recovery community and set your sights on the cure, self-love abundance. Today I'm going to talk about an idea that came to me in a psychotherapy session. If you've read my book, especially the first edition and the second edition, and eventually the third edition, which will be out in three or four months, you will know that I am constantly creating new concepts, new examples, illustrations, or theories to help people who are self-love deficient or codependent to understand why they are stuck in their relationships with narcissists and why they unconsciously prefer such people, especially when they're hurt, neglected, deprived, abused. And so during a session that I had with a client, a remarkable woman who could not figure out why she has self-love deficit disorder, aka codependency, because as she read in my book, and as I understand, it is impossible to be an SLD or codependent if you did not experience early attachment trauma, early childhood neglect, abuse, deprivation from two parents. One, a pathological narcissist who is responsible for most of it, if not all, and the SLD or codependent parent who could not, would not protect their children because of their own fears of being alone, their own core shame. And all that information is included in my book, The Human Magnet Syndrome. So with this client, she just kept saying, you know, I don't remember my mom and dad fighting. They seemed to love each other. We got along at home. We had family dinners. We went on vacations. And she just kind of went back through her memory Rolodex for people who are old enough to know what that means. And she just could not figure it out. I knew it was required to find out what happened to her. Because even people who are self-love abundant, which are what I call normal people who have problems, but solve them because of their own inner resources, or they seek external resources, therapist, friend, etc. Even though these healthy people, I'll call self-love abundant, they have plenty of memories of a childhood that is imbued with love, respect, caring, trust. And they also have bad memories because not everyone behaves well and people make mistakes. But in the case of this client, and I am going to call her Sandra, it's not her real name. Sandra kept trying to remember something negative. And then we started digging and over a, over a period of about two or three sessions, I started to find one little red flag, one little bit of information that showed that her dad was seriously narcissistic, but it was hidden. It was not expressed in front of people. 
It wasn't expressed in front of the family. It wasn't expressed at work. They probably did not know it consciously, but they felt the energy and knew if they should do, say, or believe in something that would be contrary to dad or as a husband, he would have a sharp narcissistic injury reaction, which would be expressed in low muted decibels. It would not be in your face, angry, a tirade of rage, but it would be the silence treatment. It would be a disappointing look an unwillingness to give one of the children or anyone else his time. With mom, red flags came out. Mom was the homemaker and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But she was described by Sandra as always smiling and being happy and wanting to be, please everyone. So then I asked Sandra, I said, can you remember any time where someone did something wrong, even if it wasn't a big deal? And of course she had a hard time remembering that. And so she came up with a few memories and her mom had this smile, but she remembered the smile as being like a crooked smile, not a sincere smile, not an authentic smile. And she would say, it's okay, honey, but you should do that this way. And because everyone in this family was keen on doing what is right, there was no conflict. Normally with a teenager, there's conflict. Then I asked Sandra, I said, when you were an adolescent, which for her was between starting at 12, did you ever have the normal moments, the normal moments, the developmentally appropriate moments that you kind of thought your parents didn't know anything and you directly or indirectly acted disrespectfully or oppositionally. And she goes, no, I can't, no, that didn't happen. I said, did any of your siblings act that way? She says, no. And I remember saying to her, and, and she didn't remember this movie, or I don't think she saw the movie, but it was out in the seventies and they redid it. I think recently it was called the Stepford Wives. And I said, it almost seems like you have a Stepford family that, and of course I'm joking, but I'm trying to make a point that everyone is robotic and made exactly to order. And in your family's case, to get along, to be peaceful, to not question anyone, not be oppositional. And she kind of smiled and thought that was interesting. I said, it is not normal for people to not argue. It is normal for a teenager to think their parents are dumb, to think they know more than their parents. It's normal to like, sometimes not be completely truthful, even though parents don't like it and we teach otherwise. And I said, you had a complete absence of this. Every child did not experience any form of this um, as a teen. That is a big clue. And she thought about it and she kept going back, but why do we want to pathologize something that's new and different? And I said, I promise that if I thought it felt healthy, and even though it was different, I would give it the benefit of the doubt because all my clients are different. Then I kept, when I say pushing, you know, gently and, and in a very caring, authentic way, pushing her to recall memories because what I noticed was there was a whole swath of her childhood where she just did not have a lot of memories even though she couldn't remember anything negative or anything that could lead to a negative interpretation of her parents. It was very clear that she was what many therapists, psychotherapists refer affectively disconnected 
or disassociated. And that doesn't mean fully disassociated like a dissociative disorder, but kind of the stoic, non-emotional presentation. And more often than not, when people are like that, they were raised in an environment where it was not encouraged to be openly emotional. And if affect is emotion expressed physically. And so I shared with her my observation and she said, oh yeah, other people have told me that. I said, I wonder how much of your childhood you blocked or how much of your childhood a filter was installed in your mind so that you would see the good and not see or forget the negative. And of course, the filter is a metaphor for gaslighting. And she goes, well, that's interesting. And then she goes, hey, I remember something. And it was interesting because she was excited because she remembered something. And by the way, there was no coincidence that a memory came out right after the discussion of the filter, the gaslighting. And she goes, I was in college and, you know, like a lot of freshmen, I, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I went to a party and I, I got really drunk. And she said, and I'm ashamed to admit this, I drove home, I barely got into bed and I slept. I didn't know my parents had plans to come up and visit me. And they woke me up and it would have been clear to anyone I was in a major hangover moment and they didn't say anything to me, but I'm now remembering something. My car was reparked because apparently I parked it crooked on a curb. It was cleaned out. The bottles of beer that were in the back seat were removed, but they never said anything to me. And she goes, is that odd, Ross? Couldn't that be just their cool? They understood I made a mistake and they trusted that I would learn from it. And I go, well, first of all, that, that would, that's good parenting, but to not bring it up. So let's examine that. In this examination, we included my hypothesis of a complete whitewashing of problems, a focus and conscious effort by her parents to ignore, to avoid any type of negative interaction any type of affirming statements about someone behaving poorly to keep the Stepford family idea intact. And that, as I said to her, it seems to me that your parents did not talk to you about that because that went directly against the good, perfect family narrative, the good, perfect daughter narrative, the good, perfect parent narrative. And that is when I said, this is reverse gaslighting. And obviously, as you know, by the title of this video, it's entitled reverse gaslighting. And I said, oh my gosh, and, and this happens a lot. And if you're my, my client, you know, I do this. I said, I think I just figured out something. And I said, you were gaslit to believe there was nothing wrong with you. There was nothing wrong with your father, your mother, and your family. Typical gaslighting is to make you believe you have a problem that either never existed or was minor, but gaslit to believe it was out of control. And if you can manipulate the environment and prove to the person they have this problem that in truth, in reality, didn't exist, and they would believe it so much, they would succumb to fear, shame, and they might even isolate themselves and that is how the gaslighter has control over their victim. Well, that's gaslighting. And I proposed this new idea of reverse gaslighting. Your dad 
mostly your dad and your mom in compliance to it or lack of opposition to it, which is she's also involved, gaslit everyone to believe that dad, who was severely narcissistic, that I would later find out, and I'm going to save you all those details, um, severely narcissistic, rigid and controlling, and mom, who was doting and loving, but did not ever question anything that he said, and even their siblings who had problems. But just like that incident at college and the car and the intoxication, they whitewashed it and made sure no one paid attention to it or they changed it. It's like a propaganda machine where they take something negative and, and politicians do this all the time, and, and as do pathological narcissists. They take this negative thing and they spin it so that it was okay. And then if everyone believes that, then their perceptions or the reality of what their beliefs for a person changes. So today I am here to announce a new term. It is called reverse gaslighting. And for anyone, especially psychotherapists, who have encountered a person and a family who seems too good to be true, so well-behaved, so well-mannered that something doesn't quite feel right. Or if they have a friend, or if it's yourself, and you have no negative memories of your childhood and your parents, you don't, none, no negative memories. And all you have are positive memories. And you were watching this video, and you were hearing me say, that seems dysfunctional. Now that seems like a huge contradiction to not have problems that Ross says it's dysfunctional. Well, it is because it is the human condition, the human experience that through mistakes, we master our environment. We learn about ourselves through boundaries. We find out about ourselves. We upset people. I mean, think of any child who's two or three or a teenager who's 14 or 15. That is a very healthy human experience from which you grow, you learn. Even those people who have trauma, that trauma can be turned into an experience that can make the person healthier than they could have ever imagined. And then if you accept this hypothesis, this new description of reverse gaslighting, you will now understand the missing element of the picture. Please know reverse gaslighting is hugely damaging and debilitating. Just because you can't remember anything negative and you have these wonderful, even loving feelings for your parents and your family, your siblings, if you are experiencing neglect and abuse and you cannot see it, then it's even more pathological, insidious, and toxic. Let me explain this a little bit further. A person who has experienced reverse gaslighting, they have psychological problems. And that is what I am talking about. My specialty is not being an expert on narcissism or codependency or self-love deficit disorder. I do know a lot about that, but that's not what I ever wanted to be. My expertise that I'm quite proud of is helping people solve, overcome, and heal from the psychological 
interpersonal relational forces that create self-love deficit disorder. So I say to anyone who is listening or watching that if you identify with this explanation of reverse gaslighting, it probably means you have a lot more problems than you could imagine. You might be the stellar employee, the stellar friend, a stellar wife or husband, but it also means you probably are completely oblivious to how you feel in situations that would normally make you worried, anxious, mad, sad, angry, and that you are probably then in a relationship that is harmful, but because of your gaslighting, remember gaslighting is done in a way where you don't know what's happening to you. You have this whitewashed, you know, made for TV view of your life. Also consider in reverse gaslighting, there is a pathological narcissist who knows what they're doing, who is capable of delivering stinging, painful consequences if you break the rules. Now, in this case, Sandra didn't experience that. But I said to her, and I, I promised her, and I often do that, when I'm so sure something, I will say, I promise. And I, and I said to her, if any of you stood up to your dad and say, dad, you know, whatever, any child, 30-year-old to 10-year-old, that's a bunch of BS, dad. There would have been a break. And she later recalled memories of when she was with her dad and she did something and her dad snapped and turned on her two times. You know, that took about six months of psychotherapy. In reverse gaslighting, there is a mean, nasty, somewhat sociopathic or sociopathic narcissist, just like normal gaslighting. There is a campaign of manipulation that is done by a narcissist who wants to have more power, control, and security with the people that he is in relationship with. And in the case of this family or a marriage or relationship, by convincing someone there's no problems and you love each other and you get along, when really behind the scenes it's the opposite, then the narcissist escapes identification. Then the narcissist can live his life with more security while the family, he or she is gaslit, suffer this dissociative blindness, this numbness, this made-for-TV fake relationship with themselves in the world. And in the case of Sandra, she was married for 26 years with a pathological narcissist. And it was only after they divorced, she saw a couple of my videos. I think a friend of hers uh, recommended me. Uh, she picked up my book and she thought, maybe there's something going on with her. She just had this, this, this tiny little clue, but she called it the miracle moment of just a question. So in conclusion, reverse gaslighting is just as toxic, damaging, limiting, and harmful as what I call regular or traditional gaslighting. It is perpetrated with the same techniques for the same purposes. Someone who grows up thinking they have no problems and their family has no problems, they're going to be vulnerable just like Sandra. And they're going to marry or get into a relationship with a pathological narcissist who they will think is great, lovely, likable, but were rendered oblivious of the resulting codependency or self-love deficit disorder. So I hope 
this video opened up your eyes to another potent form of gaslighting, a toxic, malignant form of gaslighting. And if you should fit that category, if you should relate to, or if this information should resonate with your experience, then consider this wonderful, beautiful, happy experience with yourself, your relationships, your family, your childhood wasn't true. And if that's the case, you can get help. Just find a person who has the ability to understand gaslighting, not like there's so many people on YouTube or podcasts that understand it conceptually, but understand it in a way that fits a treatment program designed to overcome the primary problem, which is the toxic, horribly damaging relationship with a pathological narcissist and the consequences and losses that result from it. If you should want more information about any of what I teach, write about, of course, there is my book, The Human Magnet Syndrome, and I'll be releasing the 10th anniversary edition, the completely rewritten edition, which will have this information. But I also have a library of full-length seminar educational videos that range from three hours to six hours, which are far different and more complete and thorough than anything I have on YouTube. Just go to our website, selfloverecovery.com, or write us at help at selfloverecovery.com. All right, be well, be inspired, and never forget your birthright for self-love. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Building a self-love recovery community means the world to me. Spread the word. Let people know what we're talking about. And until we meet next, I'd like to leave you my favorite of all sayings by George Eliot. It's never too late to be what you might have been. Don't forget that. Our future is in our hands, despite what anyone has told you before. You can be the self-love abundant person you've always dreamt of. It's your birthright.